I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to two places. Uh, one is Matthew 19, and the other is 1 Corinthians 7. Matthew 19, which quotes a majority of the text in Genesis 2 that we put out on email. But I also want you to uh, turn your attention to 1 Corinthians 7. So if you can kind of maybe put your bulletin in there to hold the location, that would be, that would be great. Let me just uh, walk us into our discussion for the day. So, why this title? Uh, rules for dating my daughter. Um, now, we have a lot of fun in the realm of, uh, you know, the, the whole topic of dating and how fathers respond to suitors and all those sorts of things are a lot of fun. But seriously, why this title? So, because I've always thought about the need to preach on the topic of physical intimacy, its place in life, to have a proper and appropriate understanding of it. So the title existed prior to the current circumstance. My issue was that I was raising three daughters, and I will tell you that that uh, experience, uh, contrary to what most people think about teenage daughters, uh, was a great joy uh, in life for my wife and I. Uh, my title reflects experience and concerns of a father, as a father, three beautiful daughters. Uh, I often thought about this topic, its implications, and uh, as a dad, I always knew the day would come when some young men would invade my space <laughs> and compete for their allegiance. To make it fair, I stepped aside. I've had uh, a couple of young men call me to discuss dating my daughter, some that are still in the picture and some that can't be found. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. As a dad, I was suspect of motives, okay? That's a little old-fashioned. It's like me saying I have my buggy parked behind the church today, okay? It's old-fashioned, but it is, in my estimation, completely appropriate and right for a young man that's interested in my daughter to talk to me about it, to man up. And in those circumstances, I would share uh, with them a very simple and clear thought. You need to have clear boundaries in your relationship as it pertains to the area of the physical relationship. I wanted them to know that that's something that I, as a dad, take very seriously relationship to the life of my daughters. And I often say to young ladies, the most important thing you can do is find someone that loves Jesus more than they love you. Because that affection for Christ will alter behavior and change the heart like a rule never can. So my trust is not in the principles or boundaries or rules that are established. The only thing we can trust is that a heart fully yielded to Christ, directed by the Spirit of God, is going to be impressed to move in proper directions in relationship to the area and topic of physical intimacy. The other question that comes to mind is, why address this topic? Is it relevant? Okay? This is an issue that takes down clergy, presidents, Saudi princes, royals, parents, CEOs, pro and college athletes, 
coaches, financiers, movie directors, educators, dads, moms, high school students, Olympic athletes, trainers, professionals, uh, money managers, and with it comes a devastating effect. Folks, there's an elephant in the room on the topic of physical intimacy and the need for sexual purity. Uh, If you have children with you today, I'm going to be very euphemistic, so you're, you're very safe. Don't, don't panic. Our entertainment culture is saturated with the sensual. Last Sunday, Twitter exploded with debates about the appropriateness or obvious lack thereof during the halftime show for the Super Bowl. I hope as you reflect on it, if you watch it, I hope as you reflect on it, you wish you hadn't. Because the the behavior that was displayed, that was put forth as entertainment for a family audience, was unacceptable. Yet somehow it was deemed appropriate. Kind of gives you an idea of the direction that we as a culture are moving in. In the broader culture, marriage itself is suffering. It's becoming less normative. The biblical view of marriage and sexuality is under serious assault in our culture, in academia, and in the church. The debate has quickly moved from discussions about premarital sex and sexual revolution from the 60s and 70s. And believe me, I'm not, I'm not ignorant of the fact that all of these issues have existed throughout human history. They're part of the biblical record. Okay, so I, please don't think that I'm saying it's just today. But there is in our culture an intensification of the walk away from and hastening of the pace of walking away from norms that God has established to protect us. We move from debates about premarital sex and sexual freedom to homosexuality to same-sex marriage to who is male and who is female. From 2009 to 2019, the statistics did an absolute flip. In 2008, 66% of the electorate in America rejected same-sex marriage. In 2019, 64% approve of it. Folks, that's one decade. And it indicates that there is a major shift in an area that is crucial and vital to life as we know it. The result is that those who oppose God's standards and those devoted to a theology of self-expression, that it's all about your identity and your experience and your truth, have quickly perverted the oldest institution in the history of humanity, marriage. Okay, the oldest institution in the history of humanity is, in fact, marriage. Why should we address it? We should address it because it is relevant. We should address it because it is getting dark and the light of truth is desperately needed. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 cries out, how can a young man keep his way pure in light of the plethora of temptations that exist? How do you keep your way pure? God's answer is this, by keeping it according to thy word, which is not an easy task, but it brings powerful benefits into the life of those who follow. The blessings of righteousness in this regard are abundant. 
We need the light of truth. We need to know that there is a better way forward than increasing sacrifice of biblical boundaries. We have a hopeful message in terms of marriage and physical intimacy. Marriage is a basing building block of culture. It is the first institution before children and before human government. Okay, so for God, it was the essential building block of culture and stability and hope. And I want you to understand this this morning. We could rail against what's happening, and I do not this morning intend to do that. We speak best to the distortion, not by railing against it, but by recovering and proclaiming in our own lives and by valuing in our own lives a biblical view of this precious topic. Life comes with the manual. My encouragement to you is to read the manual. And my job as a pastor, the job of our pastoral team members, is to shed the light of truth. It is to train you from the manual that God gave us so that we can know how we ought to live with a sense of deep conviction and passion. This morning I'm going to take an approach that's slightly different than what we normally do. We normally preach from one text today. I'm going to preach from two and I'm going to quote a couple others. Uh, our aim as a church is simply this, to be biblical Christians. So when this topic comes up on the scene, we are not asking what do you think about X or Y. We're asking what does God say about X or Y. What does the light of truth of Scripture want to expose for us so that we can address it and begin to more walk more fervently and passionately in the ways of God? Okay, so that, I want you to, my, my, I'm not going to rail this morning. Okay? There's part of me that sometimes is just, what is going on? What are we thinking, particularly in the context of church and professed believers? Here's the truth. God is not against human sexuality. In fact, it is obvious and evident from Scripture that God himself created it for very clear and defined purposes. He obviously thinks highly of it, so he sets high standards for his protection and use, just like a fireplace makes fire useful and like riverbanks make rivers useful instead of being destructive. So the Bible sets out purposes and boundaries, rules for understanding the use of this gift that God has given to us and how to protect it most effectively. He calls us to pursue purity by resisting distortion and by treasuring God's gift of sexual intimacy. Would you look with me at Matthew 19 verses... I'm going to read verses 3 to 6. The text says this. It says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus' reply is, Haven't you read? What is Jesus saying? This is not my thought or opinion. Haven't you read means... Well, what does God say? That's the most relevant and pertinent response that I think we can come up with. So notice what it says. Haven't you read that at the beginning, and he quotes from Genesis 2, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Interesting math, right? One plus one equals one. Okay? It's a mysterious statement, but true. They are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
So I'm going to give you in three words what I believe is a biblical view of physical intimacy. The word permanence, the word procreation, and the word pleasure. Okay, those three words can, in a sense, capture a majority of what is intended in this realm. So these are the God-given purposes for sexuality that I believe that we are called to protect. We need to understand God's design for physical intimacy. These three words will help us, starting with this text. So number one, the word permanence. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, if you're literate in Old Testament uh, scripture, you know that the first marriage ceremonies were, was performed by God in Genesis chapter 2, okay, where God brings uh, Eve to Adam. Adam responds with a, a very positive uh, way uh, to the gift of this woman that God is giving to him. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is implied in this first marriage ceremony a deep, profound beauty and intimacy created and designed and regulated by God. Okay? Jesus is later quoting that to answer a question about perversion and distortion in the realm of marital intimacy. He quotes from that text to respond to people that were arguing for freedom. He responds with purposes for the physical relationship. The first one is permanence. So I want you to see that the key, key to the original design is that God made them male and female. Interestingly, that's a truth today that cannot be assumed. It needs to be said. Secondly, a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. There is a spiritual or psychological reality to that union. You are brought together at the deepest human level. In that commitment, in that covenant, in that contract of marriage, you are entering into a very glorious and very beautiful relationship. And it happens as a man leaves father and mother, as a woman leaves father and mother, and they are joined together emotionally and physically. God aims to bring people together permanently in a committed covenantal relationship. And then the text goes on to say they become one flesh, they are no longer two but one, all right, which is picturing this idea of permanence in marriage that is illustrated in the physical intimacy that God intends in the context of marriage. Marriage is the God-given context, therefore, for physical intimacy. It is intended to connect in a permanent fashion. Now, here's the, when I deal with the teenagers in Sunday school class, and I'm talking about the issue of sexual purity and an understanding of why God gives boundaries. Okay, I take two pieces of duct tape, okay, and I put them together. Duct tape, when you stick it together, is intended to be permanent, but you can separate it. And if you pull hard enough, you can get it to break apart, you can put it together, and it gets sticky again, and you pull it apart, and it gets sticky again, but the more you do that, what happens? The stickiness or the adhesive quality diminishes. Okay? I do construction work. All right? There's a product called PL100, PL200, PL300. These are uh, products made by a company called Loctite. They're adhesives. PL500, I think, is the strongest one that they make. Okay? 
it is meant to create a permanent bond, and you cannot break that bond without doing damage. Okay? God intends for physical intimacy to have a permanent effect in your life to bring together in the context of one flesh. That is God's original purpose and design. I'm going to say this, okay, because now I'll move to application. Therefore, premarital intimacy weakens this quality because it acts permanent without permanent commitment. Does that make sense? It acts permanent. It takes. It adheres. But it does not intend to be committed. Okay, and that is a tragedy. Secondly, the topic of cohabitation, which is so becoming so approved and prevalent without an understanding that it weakens ultimate physical intimacy in the context of marriage. It fails to honor the purpose of permanence because it lacks the commitment that draws us to permanence. Does that make sense? So in the context of marital vows, we talk about giving ourselves to one another without condition, forever, till death parts us, sickness, health, wealth, poverty, whatever. It, 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 it binds us together. It creates a permanence. So we need to speak to our young people and say that cohabitation is outside of the bounds of God's design. It damages what God intended as does premarital sex. Now, I used to say to my daughters frequently, and I make this observation to young people, intimacy without commitment breeds contempt. Because in physical intimacy, something is given and something is taken. And when the commitment that is spoken in the express act of physical intimacy fails... The person feels robbed, and rightfully so. Because by design, it's meant to create permanence. It's meant to bring a husband and wife together at the deepest human level possible. And I'm going to make an argument for you real quick that I believe people know this intuitively. So the words that are used to describe infidelity belie this intuitive understanding that to break it is to do damage words like an affair or take simply a word like cheating okay it's an accurate description of what is happening okay and that always denigrates and can destroy this beautiful gift and bond that god intends through physical intimacy we also say it in the context of vows. I, have, I never would use conditional vows in performing a wedding ceremony. And I have never heard conditional vows in a wedding ceremony. There is always intuitively a presumption that this commitment that leads to physical intimacy or that is the proper context for physical intimacy is in fact permanent. And that's true for people that don't even know what the Bible says about it. Why? God created you. As a sexual individual, he intends for you to enjoy that experience in the context of marriage. Okay? Everything else devalues and ultimately destroys. Second thought 
Permanence first, then purpose of marriage, procreation. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Let me just read this for you. It says, so God created human beings, this is New Living Translation, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? So God brings together a husband and wife. In that setting, he encourages physical intimacy with the purpose of procreation. Okay? That's one of God's intended designs for the physical relationship. When children are present, a married mom and dad is normative biblically. A child with two dads or two moms is not biologically possible, therefore it cannot be called natural. It's impossible. Why does that matter? It matters because the God-ordained context for children, the best thing for children, is a committed home with a mom and dad who love them, care for them, cherish them, who are committed to the permanence of their relationship because that relationship gives stability to those children. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this. You can read a vast array of surveys and research projects that have been done on this topic that point out the, the, the what's the word I want to use here? The disadvantage that is present when there is brokenness. Okay, and I'm not saying God's grace can't overwhelm it. I have watched it in our church family. I have watched young men and young women, parents singly, for the glory of God, devoted to their kids. And I want, I want to applaud that. Okay, I've watched people in our church adopt children to bring them in to the context that God ordained and wanted them to have. And that, that coming in gives them hope for God's design and purpose in their lives. But we need to be honest and speak clearly about the serious crisis that is present in the context of America where cohabitation and unwed moms and uncommitted dads are wreaking havoc on our culture. The financial consequences of of it are systemic. It affects at every level. And all I'm saying is this. If If you're in the context of a marriage right now, here's what we'll help you do. We won't help you destroy your marriage. We will help you fight to preserve the context that God ordained. And if you're single, working this out, we will help you in any way that we can to succeed and to give your children the very best that God intends for them. May God bless those that are single and committed in such an incredible way. So the topic of permanence, the topic of procreation, which argues for the need of permanence, okay, because it is the divine context. The last purpose of physical intimacy is pleasure. God is pro-delight. God is pro-pleasure. Genesis 37.4 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, which is the purpose of our worship, right? God is pro-pleasure. God is pro-pleasure in the context of physical intimacy in marriage. He is decidedly leaning in that direction. You can turn to 2 Corinthians 7. I want to just argue this point from the text very quickly with you. 
1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5. It says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Speaking about, there's a broader context to play that I don't have time to go into this morning. If you have questions about it, come up and ask me after. It's, it's the persecution and all the struggles that were going on in the early church made it better in certain settings to stay single for the sake of your God-given calling and purpose. Okay, and that's a, a long discussion. Don't get lost in that. It's just, it's part of the text. Paul then gives a caveat to that preference that he has. And the caveat is, but since there is sexual immorality occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty toward his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I want you to notice that it is reciprocal, balanced, mutual. There is no demand on either part. There is no withholding on either part. The context is marriage. In that context, sexuality, physical intimacy is meant to be protected and enjoyed. Here's what I want to say for you. The pursuit of pleasure in physical intimacy is never to be individual. It is to be mutual. When we make it about self-gratification, about my needs, we distort and devalue it in the deepest way. Paul Tripp observes that physical intimacy, the act of marriage, is the deepest, most transparent sharing that humans can experience. It is preceded by an understanding that it is deeply personal, but never about self. Folks, there is no context in life where people are more open and devoted to one another than in the context of physical intimacy. Verses 3 to 4 then encourage a complete giving and pleasure in the context of marriage. This is a total giving. Notice the way that the text says it in verse 3. Let me just point this out to you. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, the wife likewise to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband doesn't have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. And then Paul says, do not deprive one another. Don't withhold as punishment physical relations. Why? Because they have a God-intended purpose of permanence, of procreation and pleasure, and to use it as a tool against is something that Paul responds to in a rather strong way. The text encourages complete giving. You are hers, and she is yours. Only in a closed course, namely marriage between a man and a woman, is this a safe truth. The presumption of the text very clearly is that mutual giving and pleasure serves to unify and enhance the husband-wife relationship, and as a result, it strengthens the home that your children live in. Okay, and I want you to understand that. A deepening intimacy in your personal relationship as husband and wife is a gift that you give to your children because it permanently affects how you relate to one another. God regulates it to protect this mutual enjoyment and the fruit that it bears. Verse 5. 
Would you read this with me? It says, do not deprive each other. Implication and context of the pleasure of the physical relationship in marriage. Except perhaps by mutual content for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again. Okay, so the text understands that there may be circumstances. Probably every person in this room has been through circumstances that were so stressful that desire was fading. Right? It has that effect. You're, it just, it's not interesting at the moment because I got so much on my mind. Understood. But deal with that before God and then come back together again. Meaning, fulfill your duty, husbands and wives, to one another mutually, not selfishly. Because it's never about you, because one plus one equals one. One writer said this, I can't remember the guy's name. He said, everything that happens in marriage has an effect on physical intimacy. And all the ladies in the church said, amen. I thought you were going to help me out. Everything that happens in marriage has an effect on physical intimacy. If you're a married man, it does not take long to find out that you must connect emotionally to truly connect physically with your wife. Paul Tripp makes this observation, and it's in light of the profound selfishness that all of us wrestle with and battle. Here's what Paul Tripp says. And I, and I, most sexual dysfunction is not about biology. It's about the heart. Okay, listen to that. Most sexual dysfunction is not about biology. It's not that none is. But the vast majority is, it about, your, is about your heart. Your selfish desires that rage and war in you and that occasionally explode and you beat the horn of life because you're irritated with someone else. And you're not getting what you want. So James 4 says, so you war and fight and conflict with one another. If your wife says to you, I have a headache, the first thing you should say is, did I cause it? You must treat her properly and respectfully to enjoy physical intimacy in a mutual way. That's why Peter says to the church in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Know what makes her tick. Know what gives her encouragement in her daily life. And make sure that when you understand it, you do it because most of your issues are not biological. They're about your selfishness. If you wonder if God is pro-pleasure. So I go through that text, and I think I've described to you pretty clearly that he is. If you wonder if he is, there's a book in the Old Testament that you need to read. It's called the Song of Solomon. It is a love story. Vivid, passionate, robust. I remember reading through my Bible as a teenager. And I came across that text, and I said, did somebody mess with my Bible? Right? Because I was like, this is in the Bible. It was disturbing at first. 
until you get older and you have the maturity of context. And you begin to understand that God in the Old Testament, in an entire book, celebrates this robust, glorious, passionate picture of the relationship between a husband and wife in a committed marital context. Because He created it for your pleasure, enjoyment, for permanence, for procreation, for pleasure in your life. God gave it as a gift. I want to close with two questions and then just a simple application. How do we cheapen the God-intended pleasure of physical intimacy? Number one, we speak of it as a biological event. Teach it in school without any understanding that it yields permanence. And you effectively destroy it. Say that multiple loose sexual experiences have no lasting personal effect so long as you avoid the consequences by passing out devices that are intended to keep you from getting someone pregnant. And say that it won't affect you. Say that it doesn't have an adhesive quality and that it doesn't affect the person's soul. Say it, but it's not true. We cheapen it by making it biological. We cheapen it by illicit sexual experiences outside of marriage, which sadly in my culture is common, celebrated, and even encouraged. A pure young man or woman is an anomaly when it should be the norm. Illicit expressions such as pornography that objectifies cheapens and makes pleasure entirely selfish is in this sense prohibited cohabitation that devalues permanence and weakens the god-intended context for children because it lacks commitment is prohibited here's the truth that i read as i studied for this all sinful pleasures promise the joy that only god can give see every sin works that way doesn't it it promises something, but it takes everything. Once we know the foundational purposes, so now I get back to my title. What are the rules that we can adopt to aid us in treasuring and protecting this gift from God? Okay, what are just simple things that we can do that will aid us in treasuring and protecting this gift? Number one, young people, be people of courage. Be people of courage. Don't be afraid to be singled out because of your moral convictions and desire to honor God with your life. I'll just say it the way I have it in my notes. God help every young girl who values her purity. God help her. You will rarely be applauded but you will often be envied because of what you have kept and protected. I have never met someone who regretted sexual purity to marriage. That I have never met. So young men operate from a position of honoring God and respect 
rather than selfish desire. And for whatever reason, I'm just going to tell you, in the world that I grew up in, the men were the pursuers. I hear that's changing. I lack personal experience, okay? I'm not young anymore. But I've heard that that's changing. To me, that's profoundly sad. Because now you have a mutual pursuit of things that hurt people in ways that they can't even understand. No girl should feel pressure to sacrifice this precious gift. And if you do, my word to you is move on. God has someone better for you. So be people of courage. And in that, adopt the biblical standard. The biblical standard in Ephesians 5.3 is this. And this is simple. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Paul's standard that God inspired him to record is not even a hint. Not a hint. When I heard who was doing the halftime show, I knew I didn't want to watch it. I mean, I wanted to. You understand what I'm saying, right? In my flesh, I wanted to watch it. But in my spirit, I knew I shouldn't watch that. You understand what I'm saying? There's an attraction to go outside of the boundaries, to find pleasure but it destroys permanence and it ruins procreation. You've got to connect things. Second, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, flee youthful lust. Timothy, when you sense the fire beginning to burn, turn and run. Do what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife offered her beautiful self to him, he turned and ran. Because he feared losing the gift that God had given him and treasured his relationship with God more than a temporal desire. God help us. In Job 31.1, Job, who chapter 1 says was a righteous man who feared God. Here's how you know he did. Job 31.1, he said this in response to all the accusations coming against him because of the brokenness in his life, thinking, you must have sinned, Job. Here's what Job could say. I have made a covenant with my eyes, Job 31.1, that I will not look upon a woman to lust. And I understand why he said that, because Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you look upon a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And you've weakened the gift that God has given you. The struggle is real, normal, and worthwhile. Make the commitments. Start where you are. There's a tendency in this area to live with regret about the past and to think that my, think that my past is determinative of my future. That denies the grace of God that we sang so beautifully about this morning. There is hope for what a friend of mine called reborn virginity. This way as a new Christian, they just described the sense of a new desire that God had put in his heart in spite of past failures. To say, I'm going to own the territory that God has given me. I'm going to live in that place and honor God from this point forward so that I can provide for a future mate what they and I desperately need. Mom and dad, have the talks with your children about change and the natural attractions that rise in their heart. Walk with them. Be courageous. Explain what boundaries are about. Don't sponsor your child's bad behavior and speak the truth to them courageously. We want our kids to be courageous and do the right thing. How about starting with us? 
that when they're being tempted to drift away, we say that is not the right thing to do. Lovingly, passionately, but firmly and courageously. And I want you to understand this this morning more than I want you to understand anything else that I've said. By the cross of Christ, forgiveness of our sin is possible. And restoration to God's intended purpose and plan is possible. We recover the the treasure of physical intimacy with all its God-intended purposes. We recover every bit of it through the blood of Christ. We recover it by bold repentance and by bold forgiveness. You can have a clean, fresh start with God. It's fascinating to me that when I look at John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and David in Psalm 32, that both of them find their way back to God and their way back to wholeness through confession and repentance. And God does a work that makes hope the last word in their lives. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Folks, if you're a believer, if you know that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin, there are no fatal mistakes. There are none. All unrighteousness. All selfish choices. All distortions. All perversion. God, through the gospel, aims to forgive you and restore you and make you new and fresh and to allow you to enjoy the purposes that He intends in this area of your life. Don't let regret and guilt keep you from your need to find cleansing in Jesus. Regret and guilt will never cleanse your heart. It will only drive you into depression. But when you come to Christ and you Expose your secrets. And you confess and repent, particularly with a friend. Perhaps the one you offended, stole from. God will restore. You know what Satan wants you to think? You're a loser. You can never be clean. You can never have hope. You can never have what God intended in your relationships. It's a lie from the pit of hell that is struck down by the cross work of our Savior Jesus Christ. When we celebrate purity and intimacy and marriage, ultimately the Bible says we are proclaiming. And we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. Ephesians 5, and I'll just read the verses. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33 say this. It says, for this reason, this broader picture of how the marital relationship was created in Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. It should cause you to say, wow. But I am speaking, Paul says, of Christ and the church. Paul looks at the marital relationship at its deepest intimate level and says that it pictures the personal relationship that God desires to have with me as his son or daughter. That should blow you away. And that relationship is made available through the cross work of Christ. In the text, what is Paul doing? Paul is arguing from the temporary human relationship between a husband and a wife, saying that it point, this lesser temporary points to a permanent and glorious union with God himself. Think about that. 
so that as you enjoy your relationship with your mate to the glory of God, you are proclaiming and should be remembering that though this is pleasurable and beautiful and permanent, it's not permanent. It's permanent here, but it's not eternal because God has designed you to walk in an ultimate intimacy with Him that is pictured and expressed at some level in the physical relationship. But the best is yet to come. Okay? So, as you work through this kind of topic, we should be fighting to bring it back to the God-ordained purpose because it ultimately is proclaiming. That union between a husband and wife is a picture of the union between Jesus and His church. In this context, the husband who selflessly and sacrificially loves an imperfect wife pictures Jesus who loves His imperfect bride that is cleansed and purified by His eternal work so that we can have the hope of heaven and forgiveness and eternal joy. So that the temporary ecstasy points to a greater, glorious, unimaginable ecstasy. That's why David in Psalm 16 says this, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures that never end. Don't sacrifice the hope, the life-transforming effect of that truth by temporary sacrifices. Live in the path that God loves and you will acquire a greater appreciation and aspiration and understanding of all that He has for you in the future. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, our purpose is to proclaim through the symbol of the broken body and through the symbol of the shed blood of Christ, our forgiveness is spoken out loud. It finds words in a vivid picture. It speaks, it proclaims. So I hope that if you in your heart this morning have never trusted Jesus, you never realized that there is a relationship with Him that far exceeds the best marriage that I know. I want you to know that it's available in spite of your brokenness, in spite of my brokenness. It's offered. It offers you the hope of forgiveness, of being made right with God so that you can love and enjoy Him forever. He wants to bring you in and make you a son or daughter. If you've never done that, I ask you, do that and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup and proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Maybe this morning as we bow, uh, in your heart, you've been fighting. You've been battling. Maybe it's with regret because of mistakes that you've made. I want you to know this plain, clear. There's hope. It's not found in me. It's not found in the chapel. It's found in Jesus. He wants to forgive you and point your way home. So as you come and receive the elements, let them speak to you forgiveness, hope, freedom. And as it proclaims, partake of that bread and drink of that cup and in so doing glorify and honor the God who saved you. And maybe as you do it, you need to make a new commitment to God in relationship to physical purity. And say, God, I want to walk the life that you've called me to walk. Forgive me and give me strength to follow and honor you. God, help us as we come to the table this morning to be overwhelmed by your grace. To be stunned at the relationship that we have with you. 
and to celebrate what brings us there as we think on and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus by which we are so freely and graciously forgiven. Bless us now, I pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.